We're going to read from the scriptures from John chapter 6, starting at sentence 25, reading from the English Standard Version. It says, And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign, do you, uh, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father who gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of God. Hey everyone, so great to be here with you guys this morning. My name is Jacob, if we haven't met before, and great to have you with us as we start this new series, uh, looking at the identity of Jesus. And I just trust this is going to be hopefully a really encouraging um, seven weeks as we, as we unpack week in, week out what it is Jesus says about himself, which I think is something worth considering. I was reading this week an article about, um, by a guy called Scott McKnight who teaches a university course uh, on the identity of Jesus and what the Bible says about him. And something he was describing was that every single year as he takes a new intake of students, on the very first week of the course he gives them a survey. And the survey starts by giving them uh, a set of 25 questions asking them to describe what Jesus is like. So it'll ask questions like, is Jesus someone who would be the life of the party or tend to sit off to the side? Does Jesus prefer to keep the rules or to, to um, or, sorry, break the rules or keep tradition? Uh, they're then given a bunch of kind of just, just random arbitrary things and asked to say, would Jesus like this or dislike this? So they complete the 25 questions, then after they've done that, they're given an, another survey which is pretty much the exact same 25 questions, but instead of asking them about Jesus, it's asking the students to answer it about themselves. So what is their, where does their personality fit within the system? And what he finds is that time and time again, every single year that he does this, is that regardless of what the students answered about themselves, that on average, most of the students describe Jesus as being roughly 90% the same as them. Which is a pretty interesting finding that our starting point for thinking through what Jesus is like is often to think about, well, what are we like? And then maybe just improve that by 10% or something like that. And I, I can see this tendency in myself. Often when I'm, like, when I'm on the freeway and I see the speeder just creeping a little bit above the limit, I can just say to myself, look, Jesus was someone who took rules to be more of a guideline than a hard and fast thing. If I'm on like, Facebook and I see someone just do a, a post that I don't like and I feel this, that sense of disdain towards them, I can comfort myself with saying, if Jesus read that post, he'd feel the same way that I do about it as well. And when I feel like I want something or I'm entitled to something, I do feel, I guess, somewhere in the back of my head that Jesus must surely want for me the same thing that I want for myself. 
But the problem is that if your view of who Jesus is is based on your own just assumptions and, and what you think about yourself, the odds of your view of Jesus aligning with who Jesus actually is is really slim. Rather, our view of who Jesus is should be built on who he actually is and what he says about himself. And so we're going to be over the next few weeks in a part of the Bible like Jez described uh, called the book of John in which uh, Jesus' life and his ministry is laid out. But peppered throughout this book are these seven instances where Jesus makes an I am statement. He describes himself in a certain way. And each time he does this, he's clarifying something about who he is and what he's on about. But he's actually also confronting a wrong assumption that people have about him. And so between now and the end of the year as we work through these, our hope is that we'll actually have our view of who Jesus is clarified and, and, and brought more into line with the reality of who Jesus is. And the reason that this is important and worth our time is because the degree to which your, your experience of Christianity, your relationship with God, your discipleship to Jesus, the, the degree to that which that is going to be a vibrant, joyful, life-giving and life-transforming thing will be the degree to which you're engaging with and knowing and experiencing the real God, the real Jesus, not just a figment of our own imagining. So I'm just going to pray now as we get into this text. Hopefully you've got John 6 open in front of you because we don't have it on the screen today. But as we get into this text and look at what Jesus says, we'll be able to see him more clearly. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, we ask that you would be revealing yourself to us. Lord, we are each here in this space because at the very least we're interested in what you are like or what you might have to say to us. We want to know more about you and, and more, more truly we actually want to know you more deeply. And so we ask as we look at your word now that you'd be speaking to us, that the other many, many worries and, and stresses and, and thoughts that are going to be competing for our attention over this little while, that they would just be quietened down for this time, that we might focus on you and who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So jumping into John chapter 6, and it's, it's a pretty long chapter if you've got it in front of you. It's about 70 or so verses, and it's all centered around the topic of bread. I think bread is mentioned 19 times or so in this passage. So that's just some fair warning to like hold on to your hats. Um, it's a pretty darn like adrenaline-filled subject matter. You might need to schedule a lie-down this afternoon after focusing on a long conversation about bread. But, but bread is central to this topic because of how the way that chapter 6 of John starts. There's this miracle that Jesus has just performed that is about bread. The beginning of John chapter 6 starts with uh, this crowd of people following Jesus because he's been going around healing the sick and doing these amazing things. Jesus withdraws out of the city to a mountainside where the crowd follows him. 5,000 or so families, and that causes a problem because the question is raised, how are these people going to be fed? One of Jesus' followers says to him, look, this is one guy here, he's got five loaves of bread and two fish, that's obviously not going to go around. But Jesus says, leave with me, he gets up, he gives thanks, breaks the bread in the tradition of Passover and passes it around, and miraculously, this bread is spread to satisfy these 5,000 families who are present. It's a miracle. And the people that have just seen this and witnessed this have their minds blown by it and they decide amongst themselves that what they're going to do is they're going to take Jesus back to the city and they're going to make him king because anyone who can do this is worthy of being a king. But that's not Jesus' plan for himself and so overnight he smoke bombs, he gets on a boat, goes to the other side of the river and that's where the passage that Jez just read for us picks up in verse 25. Verse 25 says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, 
when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And what we see in the, as this conversation begins is that Jesus is laying out these two different motivations or different appetites that might lead someone to want to approach him. The people come to Jesus and they say, Rabbi, which means teacher, like, well, when did you come over here? Like they're kind of acting nonchalant about the fact that they've just been tracking him and stalking him. Like they didn't already know that he'd snuck off overnight and they were with him the day before. But then Jesus, who's not much of a small talker, he says to them, he doesn't answer their question, he just says, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. What he's pointing out is that what they've just experienced in that miracle that I very briefly described is really a sign about who Jesus is. It's supposed to show that Jesus himself is amazing, he is worthwhile, he is clearly divine in his origin. But Jesus is saying, you're not coming because you've noticed that, you're coming because you enjoyed a free meal and you're just coming for more of that. He's pointing out there's two potentially different appetites that someone might have. And in this case, he's saying, you guys are here simply because of the appetite of your stomach. Like, who doesn't like free bread? It's a universal love. Like, if I'm at Woolworths and at the end of the aisle, I see the guy with the toothpick and the little bread and the olive oil and the, and the, and the seeds, whatever it is, that's already going to be an above average day um, to get that little bit of free bread. And who doesn't love getting, getting free food? It's a universal desire. And we've got a bunch of these naturally occurring and good desires for food, for water, for companionship, for shelter, for security. And there's nothing wrong with these desires at all. And, and Jesus even just addressed that. He saw people were hungry and he's given them bread. But Jesus is saying, if that is the only kind of appetite you are coming to him with, you are going to miss something. Because there's a second appetite, one that is a higher order appetite that I'm going to be describing as a hunger for God. There is an appetite or a desire that every single person has that is insatiable unless it can be satisfied with a relationship with God himself. And this is a reality about the human condition that people have been identifying and seeing and writing about for, for thousands of years. It's what British author C.S. Lewis 80 years ago described as finding in myself a desire that nothing on this earth can satisfy. It's what the French mathematician Blaise Pascal 400 years ago described as a God-shaped hole that exists in every person. It's what the African bishop St. Augustine described over 1,600 years ago as an ever-restlessness of the heart that longs to find its rest in God. And in the West today, as it has been for so many years, the hunger for God is one of the most evident, unmet appetites of our society. Mother Teresa, who obviously spent her, her life famously caring for those who are hungry and those who are sick, writes about the greatest need of the West. She says, The greatest disease in the West today is not TB or leprosy. It is being unwanted, unloved, uncared for. We can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in the world who are dying for a piece of bread but there are many more dying for little love. The poverty in the West is a different kind of poverty. It is not only a poverty of loneliness, but also of spirituality. There's a hunger for love, 
as there is a hunger for God. We live in a world that is hungry for God, and you see signs of it everywhere. If you were to visit a country that was in the midst of a famine, the evidence that there is a famine going on would be everywhere. You'd see it in the, in the price of food, that, that potentially even a single meal would, would equate the amount you could earn with a full day of work. You would see it in the, in, the, in the potential risks people would be taking in order to get food, the willingness to steal and risk punishments and consequences just to eat. You would see the evidence of the famine in the amount of time people just spent thinking and dwelling and planning for where the next meal is going to come from. But if you look in our world and our society around us today, I think you see huge amounts of evidence of the hunger for God. That there is a desperate shortage of lasting and permanent satisfaction. And you see it in the abundance of this pseudo-spiritual language that people use for non-spiritual things in the way that they talk about celebrities or music festivals or nature. You see it in the religious dedication that people throw into politics or group identity. You see it in the desperate overconsumption of, of alcohol, of pornography, of television, of drugs. You see it in the restless way people jump from career to career, from relationship to relationship, from city to city, chasing some satisfaction that is just forever elusive. And despite the effort and the pursuit of this deep satisfaction, it is so often not found because the satisfaction people are looking for is a satisfaction that can only be met in God alone. And Jesus is trying to say to the crowd, you're coming to me because you just had your stomachs filled with bread. There is a deeper hunger you should be wanting to address, something far more important, something far more valuable. He says in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. There is a better food that is available than just merely bread that satisfies the stomach and then perishes. That even miraculous bread is still just bread. And so Jesus introduces this metaphor that he's going to be using of, of what, what would this food be that can quench that deep hunger we experience for God. Now despite Jesus trying to kind of correct the direction of the crowd and, and explain what's going on here, they just do not get it. And this next exchange you see over the following verses just shows they do not understand what is going on. He just said that they need to be working for food that endures and they focus on this word work and they say in verse 28, they said to him, what must, we, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So Jesus knocks back this question. Again, you're focusing on the wrong thing. It's not about work. It's about believing in him. So they ask another question, verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And it's a weird question given that these people have just witnessed Jesus miraculously feed 5,000 people, but they say to him, look, how are you going to just prove that you can actually do something like what you're describing? Look, back in the olden days, in the times of Moses, they point to in, in the book of Exodus, when the people of Israel were freed from Egypt and were spending some years wandering in the desert, he says Moses was able to get the manna, this bread-like substance from heaven to satisfy them. What are you going to do that's like that? And Jesus again says, look, you're missing the point. Uh, he says in verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. 
So again, he's saying, you're missing the point on just multiple fronts. It's not about Moses. It's about what God gave. And the, and the, the focus was the actual bread of life that was coming from heaven, not Moses himself. And so now Jesus is saying, look, it's actually the real bread is, is a he. So he's kind of giving them a bit of a clue there. They still don't get it. They say, yes, yes, we get it, Jesus. More bread, please. And that's when Jesus then turns and gives them this central line, the center point of this chapter, where we're going to be camping out. In verse 35, he says to them, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the first I am statement that Jesus makes. He's he's letting them in on something that he sees as absolutely central to his identity of who he is. He's trying to say that what bread is to the phenomenon of physical hunger, he is to our hunger for God. He's the means of being spiritually nourished and satisfied. He is what is required in order to have spiritual life, to be freed from this deep soul hunger and thirst. And what needs to happen to obtain that is to come to him, he says, and to believe in him. And this is not what the crowd was looking for in Jesus. They've come to him because they want some material thing that will satisfy them for a time. But Jesus clarifies he has not come to give bread, but he has come to be bread. And to actually meet the deep hunger that we find within ourselves permanently. And this is actually a really confronting teaching for this crowd to hear. It's kind of nice and it's quotable and like, you know, you can put that on a wall or something. I'm the bread of life. It's confronting. Because he's saying that their conceptions of what they need were wrong. That they need him. And what Jesus actually goes through from here, the rest of this chapter, um, it's just an explaining of what this means, of what it actually means for him to be the bread of life. And he doubles down on it, and the further he goes into it, the more he talks about it, the more that they clarify what he has to say, the more confronting, the more offensive, and even the more confusing it gets. I want to show you this passage from a bit later in the chapter where Jesus restates the claim, I am the bread of life, and then he explains a little bit more about what that means. If you've got it in front of you, it's a bit of a longer bit, so it would be helpful. But John 6, 48. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. I read that in full just to try to get a bit of a sense of just how, in, how intense it is what Jesus is actually saying. He's pushing this metaphor of him being bread and, and needing to be eaten to the extreme. And he's getting pretty just kind of grotesque in doing so, talking about like chewing on flesh and drinking a human's blood. And he's saying that is what you need to do to have life. It's worth trying to explain what he's doing here because it is a pretty kind of full-on confronting passage. 
He's pushing firstly just harder into the idea that any food that we have doesn't deal with death, it just prolongs it. He points back to this instance of people getting manna in the desert and says, even though they ate the manna, they still died in the end. It doesn't solve the problem of death. But what he's offering is actually a way into experiencing life forever. But then he really moves in with the flesh and blood. And the point that I think he's trying to make here is to demonstrate that the life and the satisfaction that he is offering people is a costly one. For us to live and be nourished, it depends on death. If you go and buy a packet of sausages from Woolworths, it's really easy in our time in our culture to forget that the start of that process of you just having sausages for dinner was a living creature, hopefully a cow, you can never be sure with Woolworths sausages, but it could be but, uh, some kind of living creature having to die. And that's true of a steak, it's true of, of, of a chicken curry, it's, it's true of any meat-based food, that if you were going to eat and enjoy and be nourished for another day, something else had to die. This is even true of if you, if you just eat fruits and vegetables, that, that our life is predicated upon the death of another living thing. And we're really cut off from that reality, like we don't have to go to farms or anything like that and we can just get stuff from the supermarket. But back in Jesus' time, there wasn't this great separation that there is today. That it was a pretty accepted thing that, that to eat meat, an animal died. There was this kind of gory side to it that also made you maybe perhaps value what you were eating even more than we probably do today. What I think Jesus is doing in, when he switches this metaphor, he's gone, he could have just left it at talking about bread, but he changes it and starts talking about eating flesh. Because to eat someone's flesh and drink their blood, as grotesque an image as that is, is to be nourished at another's expense. It is to, it is to serve yourself and receive life only at the cost of another's death. And I think that's what Jesus is foreshadowing here. He's trying to kind of let them into this reality that the life that he is offering is predicated on his death. That he is going to offer up his physical body, have his lifeblood spilled, that they might be satisfied because he's pointing to how it is that they might actually have their deepest need, this hunger for God, filled. That the only way to have this relationship with God, this knowledge, this intimacy that we desperately need filled is through Jesus dying in the place of sinners. That in his death, our sin and our separation from God is dealt with. And so when Jesus says in this passage, as he did before, just to, to, to get this, you've got to believe in me or to metaphorically eat me, he's, he's not just saying that we need to believe that he exists, but he's saying that we need to find our life in his death. To put our faith in his body torn, his blood spilled, as the way to know God again. That in him and him alone and in his death there is life. That is the path to know God and have this hunger for God satisfied. That is what he's saying when he says, I am the bread of life. Now, we've gone through a bit there, and like, I'm aware that was like a, a, a dense bit of description, and, and there's a lot going on there, and probably a lot we didn't cover as well. But I, I guess it gives you a bit of a nutshell of what Jesus is putting forward to this crowd who have come simply because they want something to eat. And as you can imagine, it proves to be really, really divisive. After Jesus has finished laying out all of what he's just said there, many say, this is not for me. In verse 66, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Non, not surprisingly, really, it turns out that for some, this call to, to eat Jesus' flesh, drink his blood, it is too much. When Jesus turns and says, look, 
Essentially, I'm not going to give you the thing that you've come here thinking that you're looking for. I'm actually going to offer you something completely different. I'm going to offer to satisfy your souls. But for that to happen, I need you to make me everything. I need you to put your, your dependence on me and in my future death. People weren't up for that. And so they turn and they leave. It's a confronting reality about Jesus. And I think this is the core confronting reality about Jesus today as well. That Jesus hasn't come into this world just to meet any and every desire that any single person has before they are born again in him. But he's come into this world to address our deepest desire and ultimately to make our deepest desire him. And in realizing that, many do walk away. And it's actually a tragic reality because it's walking away from the one source of life. But we see it. People who walk alongside Jesus for a while, following him to an extent, but eventually turn around and not walk with him any further. Perhaps because there was actually another appetite that they were looking to have met and it wasn't him. That someone would be walking with Jesus and coming along to church and because they find in, in the church a community that they deeply want to be loved, they deeply want to be accepted and, and cared for, and the church does that for them. But then perhaps when the church lets them down, or they find another community that loves them in a more tailored, specific way to the way that they want to be loved, they walk away from Jesus because he's not what they really wanted. Or someone will be walking with Jesus but, and, and, and enjoying him to an extent, but the, the real appetite they have, the real deep desire they have is to find a partner, to find a relationship. And when they find that relationship and have that thing that they really want met, they don't need Jesus anymore, and so they, they leave, they walk away. Or they're walking with Jesus for a while and then they realize in, in seeing him more closely and listening to what he says, they realize that the claims he makes are absolute and exclusive, that in him and only in him is life. Or that he's not palatable in some other way or that some teaching is hard. Or they realize that what he's asking for is total allegiance and that is too much to give. And it's a hard reality this is what happens. Even in our relatively small community, you see these stories a few times a year. And as much as I want to kind of just, you know, when that happens, and I see that happen in, in, in our church, just to play that down, I'm like, oh, you know, that's okay, that's their choice, which of course it is. We mustn't downplay the tragedy that that is. To turn away from the bread of life is the greatest mistake a person can make. What we're seeing in this story is people turn away is the biggest mistake of their lives to choose the lesser over the greater. But that is the reality that we see here. And Jesus doesn't water down his words to keep the crowd. As they're walking away, he doesn't call out, guys, guys, you misunderstood, it was a metaphor, it was a metaphor, like, come back. Like, he doesn't do that because they are acting out where their heart really is. No, what he does is he holds out the bread of life, he puts forward an invitation, says that anyone can have this. Anyone can believe in me, can come to me, and if they do, they're not going to hunger. They're not going to thirst. I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. That's what he's saying. But many leave. Which you can imagine would be a discouraging thing for those who choose to stay. And it's at that point that Jesus then turns to his disciples and asks them a question. In verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? What a question to have Jesus ask you. You Put yourself in their shoes in that moment. 
He's just explained all the stuff that he said. People are walking away and he says, do you want to go away as well? And I think that's a question that is worth hearing now as if Jesus were saying it to you directly. Because you've just heard the same things that these disciples have heard. The same claims about himself that have caused many to walk away. And Jesus says, look, if you're staying with me, let's be clear, I'm not promising comfort. I'm not promising you unending bread that will keep your stomachs filled. No, I'm promising something better. And the question you're left with is, do you want to go away as well? And I think the reason that Jesus is asking this question is not for his own benefit. I don't think the way to read that question is that Jesus is feeling insecure. Like, geez, I thought more would stay. Like, guys, you're not going to let me down too, are you? Like, please, for my sake, stay. I think he's asking the question for the disciples' benefit. Because in asking the question, he helps them clarify what it is that they actually think about him. It helps them clarify their order of, of desires. It helps them clarify their order of needs. It's a similar thing that goes on, I think, if you've got, like, you've got toddlers, or, toddlers, or if you, even if you don't have toddlers, you've seen someone use this move, where if you're out like, at the shops or something, and you've got a kid who's maybe found the claw machine, like, you know, as you're walking past, you need to get to the car, you've got ice cream in the bag that's going to melt, and the kid stops and says, I want to use the claw machine, and you say, no, nah, no coins, we don't, we're not doing it. And they'll say, I'm staying. And then they might even start tantruming. They might sit on the floor. And then you, there's a move that most parents probably do in situations. Probably some like, child psychologists here will say, this is not the right move. But this is the move you do nonetheless. Is you say, look, all right, buddy. I'm going. I'm going to the car. I'd love you to come, but it's your choice. You can either come with me or you can stay with the claw machine. And you start walking and, fingers crossed, they, they, they call the bluff and they come chasing you. But the reason that that works is... And um, I don't know, I'd love to, if you are a child psychologist, come talk to me. I would love to, love to get into this. But, but the reason that works is, is that it actually clarifies for them something that they deeply know and are aware of, but in the, in the moment they weren't aware of, which is that when it comes down to it, they would prefer to be with their parents who love them and care for them and, and look after them than just standing idly by a claw machine at the shops. But when they're like tantruming, they're not aware of that. And I think that's what goes on in this question. In actually putting, putting it to the people, to his disciples, you guys are free to go as well. Do you want to go as well? It makes them realize, actually, no, I really, really want to stay. And that's what we see in Peter's answer in verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I love this response that Peter gives here. When he's asked, do you want to go? His answer is, where? Like, where else is there to go? Because as hard and as confronting and as difficult and as challenging as aspects of Jesus' teaching are, what is the real alternative to words which, which carry the promise of satisfying the soul on the deepest level, with words that promise to provide a life eternal with the God who made us and loves us? And these verses here have actually been a comfort to me just time and time again in my walk with Jesus. Because I don't know what it is about how I'm wired, but I'm like prone to just doubt, get discouraged, to feel like following Jesus is hard. And like sometimes I just have the thought come to mind, like, oh, is, is this worth it? Like, do I want to keep, do I want to do another 10 years with Jesus or another 30 years with Jesus or 40, whatever it's going to be? When, it, when you feel that hardness in the moment, when it feels like God isn't doing what I want the way I want or on the time frame that I want, but what's often clarifying me, for me, 
is when I actually come to the question, well, like, why don't I just leave? I don't, no one's forcing me to do this. I could, I could go. And the answer I come to time and time again is the same as Peter's. Where else would I go? Is there, is there anywhere else that can actually do what I desperately need, which is to satisfy my soul forever? Because I don't see just droves of people leaving Jesus and then actually going out and finding deep soul satisfaction. That's not what I see. I see people returning to the same lives of utter desperation that fill our world. Rejoining the endless search of the masses to find something that will satisfy but coming up empty. But in Jesus, I've already found the one who satisfies. The one who has the words of eternal life, who has satisfied my deepest hunger, who has filled me with a joy immeasurable. And sitting with Jesus' question clarifies that. That even with the struggles of knowing God, that I can know that the thing I want most is to be found in him. That he is the means of satisfaction. So I just want to encourage us as a church today that we need to be a people who are feeding on the bread of life. And to be really clear in that, when Jesus says that any who come to him will never hunger or thirst, what he's saying in that moment is that belief in him provides in that moment our core hunger being met, our yearning to be reconnected with God. That's what, that is what is on offer in believing in Jesus and putting faith in him, to have faith in God, relationship with God restored in that moment. But that doesn't mean that those who believe in him will never need to continue to be with him, to enjoy him, to depend on him and hear from him and walk with him. On the contrary, Jesus' invitation to experience him as the bread of life is an invitation that can be taken up daily again and again and again because we still have these same urges to go and look elsewhere. So over these next seven weeks, this is going to be our call just week in, week out. Are we going to Jesus to have our hunger met? Are we meeting with God? Are we satisfied in him? Are we even seeking to grow the depth of our hunger for God that we can enjoy the satisfaction that comes with that hunger being met in him? And we'll be coming back to that question week after week because every single one of Jesus' seven I Am statements is just another lens or another challenge to see Jesus for who he is and to experience what he has to offer. But I'm sure the reality for many, as you think about maybe to, what, to the extent that you are doing that at the moment or if you just look back on the last seven days, the extent to which you've been doing that, maybe you're not in a place where you are able to say genuinely, I am satisfied in God. I am joyful in him. I am desiring him. I'm close to him. I think, if I'm being honest, I don't think I would just come into in today easily saying I'm satisfied in God, joyful in Him, desiring Him. I just feel tired a lot of the time as well. And there could be any number of reasons for that, but I know at least in my case, and this is definitely the case in my case, I'm not sure if it's the case in yours, that often my appetite that should be met in Jesus is directed elsewhere. There's this helpful line from John Piper who, who sums up what I often experience really well, where he says, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things. There is no room for the great. I think this quote just sums up the condition of our age. We've got so many inputs, so many things on offer that we can try to go to with the hope that it makes us feel that little bit better throughout the day, that it satisfies some deep yearning or longing we find within ourselves. That as we fill our, our time and our, and our plate, so to say, with, with Netflix and 
and, uh, and just trying to find like an, something you can buy on the internet that make you feel good or a new cafe to go to or, or some fun on the weekend. Whatever we're going to, we fill our soul with that and there's actually no room to be satisfied in God. So I want to encourage you that if you're feeling that distance, that sense of dissatisfaction or, or feeling like it's hard to, to, to own that reality that Jesus is satisfying, to perhaps take up the call this week to, to prioritize making him your main meal the main thing you go to to satisfy your soul's wants. This is what we want our focus to be over this term as a church, to spend some time helping ourselves and helping one another turn our attention regularly towards God, to create space in our, in our weeks and in our lives to have him speak to us and to attend to our greatest need. To be meeting with Jesus daily, not on our terms, but on his terms. And so to do that, it's actually look at what he reveals about himself in the Bible. And so if you're out of the habit of meeting with Jesus, one, one just practical thing you could do in the week ahead. There's a chair on the door on the way out that's just got some, a printout of the book of John broken down into 30 readings. So if you did five a week, it's going to take about six weeks, which is roughly the length of this series. To take one of those bits of paper that, do the, that have the verses written down and just to commit just to at least five times a week over these next six weeks to sit down and carve out time to hear Jesus speak and be with him. And to be helping one another do this in, in, our, in our city-like communities that meet throughout the week. Or, or as a church, we've, got a, we've just started a, a church WhatsApp group. We might put a group within there where, where we can be sharing what we're reading, what we're encouraged by, and encouraging one another to go to the source of satisfaction and the source of life himself. So can I, can I encourage you towards that end to, to maybe, if you're feeling that, that disconnect with God, to say, no, he's offering an invitation that he is the bread of life that he can satisfy. And I'm going to take that up and I'm going to go to him and be with him this week. So that is something for the weeks ahead. But it's also something that we want to be dwelling on and administering to ourselves here in this space as we come together as a community. That what we do as we come together is to be nourished in who Jesus is and what he has done for us, in the total and complete work that has been done for us on the cross. And one of the ways we do that is by reminding us of this through communion or the Lord's Supper. That just as in this passage Jesus provides the metaphor of, of bread looking forward to his death, the church is also given this metaphor of bread, and we just use, um, we use some juice instead of wine here, as a metaphor for looking back. That as we eat and drink just some small token bit of bread and juice, it's reminding ourselves that our deepest satisfaction was found in a real death. That Jesus died so that we might live. And the way that we're going to do that together is just in a moment, actually even now, the band's going to come up onto the stage. And it, the band's going to just play, play an item for us. You don't have to sing along to this one, which is great, seeing as we don't have lyrics on the screen anyway. But what we will do over this time as the band plays a song is it's a time to reflect. It's a time that if you are someone who has come to the conclusion that, yes, in Jesus there is life, that you can, in that time, go to the back of the room, get a bit of juice, get a bit of bread, and then just bring it back to your seats so that you'll be able to take it together. But as well, if you're someone who's not there yet, you're still on the fence, you're still investigating, that's great, that's okay, we love that you're here, we're not going to ask you to pretend to believe something you don't believe. So I just encourage you to take this time as a time of reflection, to consider whether it is that you do find in yourself a hunger that just isn't being met anywhere else. You might choose in this time to just write some questions down on the white cards, they'll be collected later, we'd love to follow those up with you. You might choose just to enjoy this as a, as a relative moment of just peace and stillness. So that's what we're going to be doing. So I'm just going to pray now, and then the band will, will sing a song. It will do the time throughout that to go to the back, bring your bread and juice down, and then we'll do communion together. Let me pray. 
Heavenly Father, we just thank you for these words that Jesus gives, that he, that he is the bread of life, that in him we can know you, that we can have our deep desire for you met, that we can find life and life eternal, and that that life consists not just of more of the same, but a life that consists of knowing you, the one who we were made for. Having that God-shaped hole in our heart filled, having our restlessness put to rest in you, having our deepest desire met. And we just pray that we would be remembering this now as we go to the table and as we get this bread and this juice, that you'll be reminding us of what you've done for us, particularly those of us who are deeply in need of this reminding. We are so prone to forget. We are so prone to wander. And Lord, for those who are still seeking and searching, I just pray you'd be with them in this moment as well. That you are, you are near to those who are looking for you. That you'd be showing yourself, helping us understand more of who we are, of who you are, and what you have done for us. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.